Listen to ordinary people who lead extraordinary lives. Their leadership styles forever impressed in the hearts and minds of people, be it in their professions, personal life, and or in communities by being an example of greatness. Be inspired by these personal stories and prepare to be both moved and motivated as Maurice Manley II, the serial entrepreneur, interviews present and future icons. Challenge yourself to recognize the leader that lives within so that you may continue to grow and experience amazing things in life. We are all capable of leadership. Take charge and lead up. This is episode number 64, The Law of Circulation. We had the distinct pleasure of talking to Vince Bryson, the CEO of Ronald McDonald House of Charities of Southern California. Clear vision and the ability to lead with collaboration, inclusiveness, and consideration gives Vince the space to create meaningful change. His commitment to doing good business and full transparency is what makes him a world-class leader. Without further ado, we present to you Vince Bryson. Welcome back to another episode of Lead Up. Today joining me is Mr. Vince Bryson. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Good. No, thank you for having me. Um, we got a lot to get into. We had a great conversation prior, and I want to touch on some of those points. But before we get there, I want to start because you are currently the CEO of RMHCSC, which is the McDonald House of uh, Charity Southern California, correct? Yes. I, I get that right? Yes. Okay. And you've been there how long now? So I just had my 20th anniversary yesterday. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. 20 years. And then prior to that, you um, I don't know if it happened right before you were with Magic Johnson's uh, foundation for, yes. what was it, AIDS? I was the CEO of the Magic Johnson Foundation. Actually, the first, when it first started, mm. right after he made his HIV announcement. And then I spent 14 years with the United Negro College Fund. Huh. Yeah. So nonprofit so management has been my, that, my life. That's work. your niche. Yeah. And then prior to that, is that when you were um, at Staples Center or AEG? That came in between, actually, just before uh, I started working with Ronald McDonald House Charities. Okay. So I spent about 20 months. I was in charge of selling the uh, suites and the premier seats <laughs> when the Staples Center was being built. So kind of a, a left field yeah. or left turn for me. So tell me, how did, how did you get, get into the nonprofit sector? Is that something that as a child or, or in high school, you say, you know, what, I'm going to the nonprofit business. No, um, I actually didn't choose this path. It hmm. chose me. Um, I studied music in uh, college, have a degree uh, in music performance from the University of Michigan. And all of my life uh, growing up in Detroit, people knew me as a musician. 
And uh, as I was graduating college, I wasn't sure that I wanted to become a musician. Why? To, to have that professional life. I think that I really uh, craved more stability mm. in my life. And the musician's life is doesn't necessarily have to be uh, stable. But I think I just wanted something different. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was living in Detroit and a friend of our family, I was looking for a job. And he suggested that I take on this job with the United Negro College Fund. So I needed work and uh, I did it. Okay. And I enjoyed the work. And next thing you know, I was getting a promotion and being moved to Los Angeles. Oh, wow. So even then, after spending 14 years with UNCF, I, I still wasn't quite sure that that's what I wanted to do. And again, another uh, sort of stroke of faith, fate, mm -hmm. I guess it could have been faith. <laughs> uh, I had developed a friendship with Magic Johnson. He had done some charitable work with UNCF. And November 7th, 1991 came. He made his HIV announcement. Hmm. And uh, I was there at the forum when he made that announcement. And he asked me if I would leave UNCF and come and lead a foundation he was creating. So what do you say at a time like that? Yeah, when, Magic Johnson asked right. you to take a job. You, exactly. <laughs> you go. And, you know, he he was my friend. Yeah. So like everybody else, I was devastated at that news. And yes. probably in the back of my mind, I thought that, you know, he wasn't going to be around very long mm -hmm. because that's what happened back then when people made those announcements. So I thought this would be a way of me supporting him and creating a legacy uh, for him. So I agreed to do it and uh, got the foundation started. And it was four years later, I thought, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> I've been doing this now for almost 20 years. Is this what I really want to do? Yeah. And so I took some time off, did some consulting and really um, tried to figure out what my next move would be mm -hmm. and I actually decided that this was a way of really being of service mm -hmm. to the community mm -hmm. and I wanted to continue to do it. Wow. That's great. Yeah. That, that so many parts of that because I think oftentimes we are in situations like that and we don't see the beauty while we're in it and we're not paying attention to ourselves, we don't do the sabbatical that you did. Like, let me step away and, and really dig in and see, is this what I want? I come across countless people who are probably have a position like you had, or they, they're in an, uh, another position, um, high ranking, they're making great money and they've been at it for a long time. However, it's not necessarily what they want to do. And, but they never took the time to find out what it is that they want to do. They just say, well, you know what? I'm earning a living. It put my kids through college on and on and on. Got me this house. So I'm going to stay in it. But it sounds like at that point, working with magic, you found purpose, 
niche or niche and um like you said that that drive and desire to want to impact yeah that, that's true um again as i say it chose me i didn't really choose it initially and that's really been my career path even when i started at uh ronald mcdonald house charities uh it was a chance encounter with a friend of mine hmm. after church who approached me in the parking lot uh, in the parking lot and said, you know, I just started working with this executive search firm and we're looking for a new executive director at the Ronald McDonald House. Would you be interested in that? I thought, well, I don't know. You know, I had heard of <laughs> RMHC, but I didn't really know what they did like most people. Uh, but I had respect for this guy. And uh, so I decided to talk with him a little bit more about it. And by the third interview, I had made up my mind that this was this the next the step in my journey. Okay. And I think at that time, I uh, had really come to the, uh, the decision that nonprofit management was the way for me to um, fulfill my my uh, career of service. Mm. That's always been important to me to be able to to provide some service to the community, to be able to help support others. Um, and I've been very fortunate to have been able to make a career doing something that I love. Yes. And really, I think, um, have some impact in our community. So speaking of, uh, of impact, how much does impact have on your business decisions, like your personal ability to impact? Well, I, I take a businessman's approach to nonprofit management. I okay. try not to run these uh, like a charity. I try to run them like a business. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly things in administration that I do that I think about like a business financial mm -hmm. uh, decisions that we make, certainly some of the uh, human resources decisions that we have to make, uh, investment decisions. How do you invest the funds? How do you grow the organization? You know, we've got a thing now. We're, we're really in the midst of a lot of phenomenal growth where many of our programs are doubling, even tripling in their size. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of my role is to make sure that we manage that growth responsibly, that we don't get too far out ahead of ourselves. Because if you think about it, organizations like mine run strictly on voluntary donations. Yes. Nobody is being forced to give money right. to RMHC. Right. I mean, it's a voluntary donation. And in 2019, we raised more than $15.5 million That's in voluntary donations. It's remarkable it's, when you think about extremely. it. Extremely. And this is an organization that's been around for more than 40 years. We started with one program, one Ronald McDonald mm. House that had 16 rooms. And now we have six Ronald McDonald Houses that have 190 guest rooms along with a camp, Ronald McDonald uh, mm. for Good Times, and two Ronald McDonald family rooms and a hospitality cart, all $15.5 million. And 
there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. All of this is because of you? Well, no. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, we, 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 my job is really to work through other people. Yes. So yeah. a big part of my job is to recruit, mm-hmm. attract, and uh, nurture, mm-hmm. and then recognize more than 10,000 volunteers who give of their time and give several million dollars worth of free wages to us in terms of what it would cost if we had to hire people like that. That's in addition to the 15 and a half million dollars we're raising in cash. Plus there's another $2 million in in kind gifts that people donate to us. So my job is really sort of like the, uh, uh, the conductor Yeah. In essence, I try to bring people together and then get them on a strategic path Mm -hmm. going in the same direction so that we can accomplish more things. And this this is part you leading right in every time. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So on that note or beat, what percentage of your leadership style would you say is transformative, transformative base rather? And what percentage is behavioral base? I'm sure you know what that means, but I'll explain to the people. So transformative leadership is leadership, a leadership style that is created in a group like setting and behavioral base is a style or a theory that states that leadership can be taught or it, that someone can uh, learn it or, or they can be trained to be a leader. So in terms of your leadership style, as you just intimated that your job is to kind of coordinate, direct, yes. bring together. How much of that are you actually rolling your sleeves up with your group? And then how much of it are you just kind of teaching and training? So there's a bit of both. I haven't thought about what percentage uh, <laughs> I do of each, but I definitely do a bit of both. I think a lot of leadership is visionary mm. and strategic. And I really strive to do both of those. Uh, We're in the process now of developing a new strategic plan that's going to guide the organization for the next five years. So I'm intimately involved with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And in terms of, you know, going back to what I mentioned earlier, this big initiative of managing growth responsibly, Mm -hmm. uh, when we think about how, what are the strategies we're going to employ, I feel as though I have to be sort of three to five years ahead of what everybody else is thinking about in the present, that I have to be the kind of thinker that is always thinking ahead. Mm -hmm. What are we going to look like in 2025? Or what are we likely to look like Mm. at that time? And then to, you know, help to guide people around that vision. Yeah. I think that's a big part of, of what I do. I think the other part is, you know, when you're the CEO, people are always watching you, even when you're not aware that they're watching you. So there's a lot of this that is done by, uh, what you do. So if I'm walking in the hall, I notice trash on the floor, I pick it up. Mm -hmm. And, Oftentimes, I'm not looking around to see who's looking. 
to see that I right. pick it up, but I pick up the trash. Yes. Somebody may see that. So the next time they are walking and they see trash, they're more likely to pick it up because mm-hmm. they saw me do it. Yeah. You know, I treat people with respect, whether you're one of the housekeepers mm-hmm. in the house or you're one of my directors in the house. I speak to everybody. I smile when I speak to everybody. Mm-hmm. That's true of all the guests that are in the house as well, because our offices are inside a Ronald McDonald house. So as you can imagine, the majority of our guests are going through a very difficult phase of their mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. They've got a really sick child across the street in the hospital. So sometimes just smiling at somebody yeah. can make a difference in their day. I've said hello to a guest and they just kind of, they don't even raise their head. You know, they mm-hmm. just kind of murmur mm-hmm. a response, but you can tell they're having a bad day. And even though I may not engage in a conversation with them at that time, just by having a good heart towards that person, smiling towards them, being a good presence towards them, giving them a good vibe, Mm -hmm. so to speak, uh, I think can make a difference in someone's life. And and that's what we really try to do at RMHC is we really try to be facilitators Mm -hmm. for healing. Our mission is to provide comfort, care, and support for these families and their children. But sometimes the children, the sick child, never comes to the Ronald McDonald House. They Hmm. may be in the hospital the entire time. So our job is to take care of the family and put our arms around them and check off all the boxes that they never thought to consider before they came to see us. Yes. How much of that... um, that that type of love and care do you think kind of reverberates to the staff personally meaning you're doing that all day you're smiling you're you're acknowledging you are aware consciously aware of um well your eq your emotional intelligence how much of that do you think spills over into your personal life um, well, let me talk about my staff first, because okay. I know that it's impactful with mm-hmm. my staff mm-hmm. because so uh, the way we're organized, we have um, executive directors at each one of our programs. OK, so at the seven, the six houses and the one camp that we have, there's an executive director there mm-hmm. and they have a team of people on their staff as well. And what's interesting is that they have seven different personalities, seven different leadership Mm -hmm. styles. Mm -hmm. And I observe how their leadership style and their personality impacts their team Mm -hmm. and their volunteers. Mm-hmm. And so I know that it is, it has an, it has an impact because I see it. Yes. Every time I visit one of these other programs, some of the, you know, everybody's got a different style. So you have people that are uh, more, how can I say, um, they lead with love. Mm-hmm. And so their staff leads with love. Their volunteers lead with love. Mm. There are other people that, you know, they're more numbers focused. Okay. What are the numbers? Right. How are we doing on our occupancy? How are we doing on our fundraising? And so everybody else follows their lead. So I see that. So that makes me more aware of my style as well. 
how I interact with people, how I lead, uh, how I address problems, Mm -hmm. challenges, how I address success. So I know that has an impact on, on people. How that impacts my personal life? Well, you know, I think we're always learning Mm-hmm. about ourselves as individuals mm-hmm. and our path as we move forward. I'm uh, a person that has a very strong faith, have all my life. And so that's a part of who I am. I think that's a part of why I was attracted to this kind of work yeah. and, and service work as well. But I believe in a higher power as well. And I believe that, you know, the... Um, the law of attraction, so yeah. to speak, as well. That what you are is what you attract. Yeah. Even if you're subconsciously doing that, right? I agree. <laughs> that that happens as well. So I think, again, I always want to be careful with my thoughts and with my words mm-hmm. because I believe that thoughts are things. Yep. And um, I also believe that happens in uh, throughout our actions. So I have a really good friend that, uh, you know, we'll go out to dinner. Sometimes it's just us. Sometimes it's lunch. Sometimes there's a group with us. Mm -hmm. And he and I are always reaching for the bill. And we kind of have this contest. (laughs) And for me, the reason I do it is because it's fairly selfish because I think you can't outgive God. Right. So I think I also believe in the law of circulation that the more that you give, the more that comes to you. Absolutely. So for me... While it may appear to most people that I'm being generous, in actuality, I think it's a little selfish on my part because <laughs> I know if I'm a bigger giver, I'm going to be a big receiver yes. as well. And quite honestly, that it, that has played out in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was wondering, just because we are creatures of habit and you get in a routine, you, I mean, we spend majority of our day or time at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you're exuding certain behaviors for this length of time, it, to me, it seems like it would naturally just or automatically carry over into the personal life. So that's why I was asking, because I wanted to know if you had seen or heard of any stories where that type of behavior has benefited someone outside of the job. I think I think it's true. Uh, I think it's definitely true. I mean, the other thing is that how do people know you Mm -hmm. uh, through reputation? And and I think a lot of people know you through your work. Absolutely. Uh, And especially the kind of work that that we do at RMHC, because we're always interacting with volunteers. Mm -hmm. So there are thousands of people literally that. I may not know each one of them individually, but sometimes they know me because of my position. Mm -hmm. So the the impact that my leadership style has on them as a volunteer makes a difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I can't tell you how many times I've been approached on the street where someone will recognize me from my work at RMHC. Either a family will come up and give me a hug. 
On the street. On the street. And wow. just say, oh, you know, thank you so much. We stayed at the Ronald McDonald House and it was great. And I don't necessarily know these people, <laughs> right. but I represent something to them. Yes. I yes. represent the volunteer that they may have interacted or the really good job that another staff person did mm. with them. So they're giving me that love on behalf of someone else. Yeah. So I think that's the kind of uh, leadership that is infectious that many times comes from the bottom up and not necessarily the top down. Correct. So someone on my staff did a good job. I was the beneficiary of that hug. Absolutely. Because they, as you said earlier, they did that, that great job because of you, because of your leadership style, your training and the example that you set. So that's, yeah. That's so good. it does come in. It does. When I think about my team members and even volunteers and I have volunteers that come up to me that thank me for the opportunity to give of their time because of what they receive back. Mm. Maybe it was just a, a conversation that was meaningful to them yeah. that they had with one of the families that were staying there that really touched them where the family, like the one that gave me the hug, mm -hmm. maybe they're responding to a volunteer in a way like that. Yeah. Thank you for doing this so much. Well, you can't go out and buy that. That's no. not a service you can go out no. and buy. You are providing a service that is meaningful to another human being that uh, they're grateful for. Yeah. And so the volunteers sometimes will come again on behalf of the organization there. Thank you for, for providing this for me. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you what it now means to my life because I'm a volunteer here. Yeah. It's made a really big difference. And donors can sometimes do the same thing. They give money and that makes them feel good. Yeah. So true. we're in the business in many ways of making people feel good <laughs> about themselves and what they're doing, because again, it's just a circle. Yeah. You know, it's that law of circulation. Yes. Yes. Totally agree. What would you say your fundamental keys are to creating change within an organization? And how different are those keys from the ones you use to create change in your personal life? So for the organization, I think collaboration, inclusiveness are all a big part of creating change. Again, I've got probably 140 people that are paid to do a job at Ronald McDonald House Charity, Southern mm -hmm. California. So we've got that number of people that are on our staff. But when I think about the number of volunteers we have in a given year, it's well over 10,000. Mm. So it's a very different dynamic when you're talking about motivating volunteers to accept change. Right. But even with your paid staff, you don't necessarily, because I say so, yeah, change. Right. So it has to be inclusive. You've got to get people's feedback. Uh, you've got to get their buy-in to something uh, in order to motivate that change. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, one of the, I think, challenges of working with with nonprofit organizations is that change doesn't happen as quickly as we might like it to. Right. Um, because of those dynamics I just cited. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that 
when it takes a hold, it grips stronger because you took the time to elicit people's feedback, to include them in decision making, um, to listen to their to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you really get, I believe, a stronger buy in from people when you're looking at change management. And I think you've also got to be strategic. You know, you've got to go find the person who's really not in favor of this change, who may be in a leadership position. And you got to convince that person Mm. to be on the team, to accept this. And I think then you're eliminating obstacles in trying to promote change management as well. Um, and I think when you when you approach that, you know, you asked me before about the style. I think in many ways it's a it's a love based style. Yeah, that's you what know? it sounds like. I mean, it's um, based on what you just said. There's a lot of consideration for the other person. It's not um, just okay. This is what I think, and I have the best idea. Right. My mother used to always say, uh, "People say I'm the boss, you the hoss." <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I don't think that works really well for us. And then in my personal life, I think it's fairly similar. I mean, this mm-hmm. this whole love based approach. You've got to show people love in your family in order to, you know, they they may be. When you think about parenting, mm-hmm. you know, you think about your parents took care of you when you were unable to do anything yes. for yourself, right? Yes. You're a little baby. You can't do anything to support yourself. They're 100% doing everything. Mm-hmm. And as you age, that percentage lessens, Yeah. right? Till the point where you're an adult and self-sufficient, you're doing everything for yourself and then God flips it <laughs> and you, you end up right taking back. care of your parents. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I think in a family, uh, I just did a talk on this about how family has been one of the things that has been one of the fundamental supports in my life. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm big on my family tree and uh, the study of genealogy. And I've been able to trace my family tree back. Certainly my black relatives, the earliest one was born in 1802. Oh, wow. So it's interesting when you think about what our families had to endure, say my grandparents migrated to Michigan from Georgia during the Great Migration Mm. in the 1920s. And why did they leave? They left because of extreme racism. You know, the Ku Klux, the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. But they just dropped everything and went to a place that was completely foreign to them. Mm. Uh, my grandfather on my father's side did that with 11 children. Right? Uh, because that's what families did yeah. back in those days. They had a lot of kids. So can you imagine having 11, 11 children kids. and moving across multiple state lines to a place where you don't know anybody? That's no. what they did. He wasn't alone in doing that. A lot of people did that. They made that change. So when I think about the decision I made mm-hmm. decades later to leave you know, certainly a comfortable environment in Detroit, Michigan, to move to Southern California, where I knew no one. Mm. I wasn't the first one to have done that. Right. 
there was something in me from my family that gave me the confidence that I can do this because grandpa did this. Mm. Right. And it worked out okay for him. It's in the, it's in the gene code. Exactly. So when you're surrounded by sort of that support and love of a family, Mm -hmm. it makes a huge difference in your life. I'm, I'm convinced that I have the confidence and the leadership today because of the environment I grew up in. I grew up with both my parents in a house. We lived in a duplex. My mother's parents lived upstairs. So I had four adults in the household who loved and supported me my entire childhood. So that became your blueprint. I was loved (laughs) as a child all over. So why wouldn't I be confident growing up? I mean, we didn't have a lot of money. We were what you would describe as the working poor, right? Uh But we had an abundance of love. Mm. And I had two older brothers. So, you know, I was just, I never knew anything other than a loving, supportive environment. So let me ask you, how are your two older brothers right now? So today? Uh, they're, one of them died 18 months ago, oh, unexpectedly. Sorry to hear that. And uh, the other one, my oldest brother, is retired and living in Phoenix. Huh. So he's having, he's living he's his living best his life, life, right? <laughs> he, he had a number of jobs, one of which was a truck driver. And uh, I was there with him Thanksgiving. We were talking about um, visiting all the U.S. states. Mm. He's told me he'd been to 49 of the 50 states. So I said, well, okay, which one haven't you been to? <laughs> surprise, surprise, Alaska. So I said, we got to go to Alaska. Yeah. Right. Uh, so we're planning a trip to Alaska. I'm going to have the sign made. Nice. This is my 50th state <laughs> visit. So he can hold it up. He can check off, check that off on his bucket list. Wow. So, so all of the states, he drove to all of them. Mm-hmm. Well, he got on a plane to go to Hawaii with me. Okay. Uh, okay. So, uh, <laughs> but all the others, he had, he has driven to every one of the 48 continental u.s that's so cool yeah wow that's talk about experience how would you say you measure you know we've been talking a lot about impact and uh and and progress and change how do you measure that uh more so how do you measure the impact that you have on others i don't really think about it in terms of measuring it Mm mm-hmm I think about it in terms of just doing it. Whenever I see a place where I believe I can be impactful, I just do it. Um, and I, I don't think about what's, what's the impact of that. Because one of the things I have learned is that, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink it. Yeah. And unless yeah. that person is ready to... Um, be loved or to be taught or to be supportive, you know, it may not, you may not have the impact that you would like, or you might not have the desired outcome that you would like. I've also learned that you never know how meaningful your action can be on another person Mm. when you're doing it. 
you sometimes don't learn it until years later. That's true. When they will tell you a story, you know, you did this for me. Mm-hmm. And that just changed everything. And you're thinking, I did? Yeah. And I, I, <laughs> I don't remember what? that. <laughs> you know, but they remember. And yeah. that's the important thing. So I tried to do that on with my family. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, right now, my great niece is living with me. Mm. And she graduated college. And, and she asked me if she could come from uh, Indiana and uh, stay with me while she pursued a master's degree and really tried to create a life for herself okay. here in California. So I said yes. But again, that, that's not the first time that that's happened in my family. Right. You know, my, my father's father, um, his grandsons were orphaned at a very young age. I mean, my, really? my, yeah, my cousin, his father died when he was five years old. So my grandfather took them into his house, these two boys, took them into his house, raised them like his own. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've all heard lots and lots of these kinds of stories, especially in the African-American community where people do that on a regular basis. Um, But you do it because there's a need Mm -hmm. and you do it out of love, because if you have something to give, why not give it? Right. I agree. It can make a it can make a difference in that person's life. And I think you should give it without expectation because again, we all have our own path and you don't know I don't sometimes even know what my path is, right? <laughs> Not to mention someone else's. Right. You know, yeah. so you just give them, you just love them, you just support them. And all I'm doing is paying it forward. That's what was mm-hmm. done to me. Mhm. That the, I'm a, I'm not even gonna mess it up. I'm gonna leave it right there. <laughs> how how do you continue to have effective leadership within an environment that's not so favorable? If I don't know if you've ever been in that position, of course. Okay, I, I, I thought <laughs> that you had. Sure. You know, my father told me. Uh, when I was a young man, he said, you know, there are always going to pe- be people that are for you and people that are not for you. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, that's just the way that it is. Yeah. Sometimes it's just the way that you look. It's the way that you talk. You know, it, it doesn't matter why it is. You can't allow that to get in your to become an obstacle that you can't overcome. Mm-hmm. And um you know, you just have to take those as lessons. Um, I faced a lot of that in my life. And, um, you know, I, I fortunately, I've learned from it. And okay. in many cases, it has humbled me. Uh, in many cases, it has challenged me. Mm-hmm. Um, and as he said, you just have to accept the fact that everybody's not going to be for you. Yeah. What, I mean, what, what's your biggest lesson in that? Don't take the bait is my biggest lesson. Sometimes yeah. people try to bait you. Yeah. They try to provoke you. They try to get a reaction out of you. And I think my greatest lesson is that I don't have to take the bait. Mm. 
I don't care what you're saying about me or what you're doing behind my back. Yeah. I want to be aware of it uh, because then I can go to plan B mm-hmm. and, you know, you know how to proceed, do an end around of all of this. Uh, so it doesn't mean that you're blind to it. You have to be aware of it. Uh, but it, you don't have to respond in the way that they would like for you to respond. I think that's the key. You have to respond in a way that's in your best interest. Mm-hmm. And most of all, I, I'm a big believer in, in confrontation as well. Mm. But I don't think confrontations have to be emotional. Very true. If you can take the emotion out of confrontation, you can have a, a very effective change management <laughs> strategy, right? Right. right. Uh, there's a book I read and I had my staff read it as well. Um, I think it's called difficult conversations Mm -hmm. and it's a management guide to how do you have difficult conversations? Mm. And there's a step-by-step process that leads you through that whole journey of, in many cases, having a difficult conversation with a volunteer. How do you fire a volunteer? (laughs) Right. Or if a volunteer, even if you don't go to that kind of a drastic action, how do you amend a volunteer's bad behavior right. uh, effectively so that you don't necessarily lose that person? Mm-hmm. And I think that's true of you know personal life as well. How do you affect change in another person? Uh, and most of the time, it's by taking an inward look at mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. What was my contribution to this? Um I think that can always help the situation. Totally agree. I was having a conversation uh, with a good friend of mine maybe a week ago. We were talking about confrontation. That word oftentimes or majority of times I I think has a negative connotation to it. Mm -hmm. You think that confrontation is a fight, but not not necessarily. Yes. And I think that's especially true for African-Americans. Yeah. Because there's so many stereotypes associated with us. Yes. The angry black woman. Mm-hmm. Right. The violent black man. Right. 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 And I'm a big guy. Right. Yes. So a lot of times, even though I'm the guy that always has a smile on his face, you'd be surprised how many times that stereotype comes up mm. uh, where people will say, oh, well, you know, he was just so angry. I'm like, they say that about you. Yes. And I'm like, what? And then I realized this is a manipulation. Mm. This is someone who's trying to take advantage of a stereotype to get something that they want. So it wasn't that I was actually angry. Yeah. Right. But they're trying to take advantage of a stereotype Mm -hmm. to advance their own agenda. Right. So I think we have to be. But if I if I had responded emotionally to that, taking the bait, taking the bait, I wouldn't have been able to see clearly what this was Mm -hmm. in actuality. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes for me, confrontation without emotion has been a a really um, key element towards uh, being successful in dealing with other people. Yeah, because you can think straight. As you said, yes, when the emotion is not there and then you don't take things personally. 
it's kind of like the, the four agreements. <laughs> one, I think the number one rule was don't take anything, anything personal. Yeah. But it's hard not to take things personally when they're being directed at you. Even though yeah. you're exactly right, it's not personal. It's more about that it's person them. who's directing all of this negative energy mm -hmm. towards you. But it, it can be a challenge not to take it personally when it's coming towards you. Yeah. It requires a heightened level of maturity mm -hmm. and, uh, and understanding. And to get to that point requires another, that, that's work in yes. itself because you have to work on self in order to get to that level. But that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> what, what are the keys to raising money? Well, I think... You, you know, again, going back to operating our organization in a, in a business-like manner, I think number one is transparency. Mm -hmm. You've got to be transparent about what your objectives are, mm -hmm. uh, how you plan to steward that contribution, and how that contribution is going to impact the mission that you're trying to fulfill. So I think you've got to be transparent about all of that. So, again, I think we've got to be good uh, business stewards of the funds that we receive. And I think we've done a really good job of that. We've got outstanding financial leadership in our charity. Um, and I think, too, for me, the, the work that we're doing is it's so effective and it's highly relatable. Mm -hmm. So most people, even if you don't have children, there's a child in your life. So when I get people to come to visit one of our programs, they can relate to what it is we're doing. Because the first thing they, they think when they walk through the doors is, wow, suppose this was my family. Mm -hmm. It's so random. Yeah, I can't tell you how many stories that I've heard from families who say, oh, I just thought my child had a cold and... It wouldn't go away. Mm -hmm. And we went to the doctor and it was something far more serious. And then immediately we had to leave and come here. So wow. it's a it's a very random this this whole notion of, of health challenges like this are in some cases very random. Sometimes it's a car accident. Yeah. You know, where true. families have to come to the house. So when people visit our programs, whether it's the houses or the camp or the family rooms, they will tell you, I just, I walked through here and I thought, wow, if this happened to my family, I'd want to be right across the street from the hospital. Mm -hmm. I'd want to be in a facility that looked like this. I'd want to be with people who were experiencing similar kinds of circumstances. Mm -hmm. So there's a full understanding right. of what it, you know, you create a, what I call a community of strangers, yep. right. Who come together in a, in, for one reason or another. So I think those are the key elements. Once you do, you do those things, you answer those questions mm -hmm. for current donors or prospective donors. Then you have the opportunity to build a partnership with them so that they want to donate because they want to be a part of this. Mm -hmm. They want to be a part of helping solve that family's problem. And they know that they have the ability to do so. Why wouldn't they say yes? Yeah. So, you know, they see an organization that's well run. 
they see a need mm -hmm. and they have the capacity to meet that need. Mm. Why wouldn't they do it? Because the reality, as I stated earlier, is sometimes they end up feeling better for themselves yeah. by doing it. Yeah. We're offering them a, a, an intangible mm -hmm. feel good. I'm not selling them a widget no. or, or something of that sort, but unlike buying a new car after a few weeks when the smell is gone, right? You're over it. Yeah. With this, every time you think about it, you feel good about yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. It's the gift that keeps giving. And I think what you said earlier, the law of circulation, like the game you played with your friend, a lot of the people that donate and give are probably playing that same game. Mm. Yeah, I think so, because we deal with a lot of people with, with means. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think part of the reason they do have it is because they were responsible about it. Yeah. Wealthy people get a uh, uh, don't have the best reputation a lot of times. Some of that's deserved. Some of it is not. Yeah. But the reality is that wealthy people tend to give a greater percentage of their wealth to organizations like mine. We mm -hmm. were talking before yep. this started about <laughs> Bill and Melinda Gates. Yes. Who I think have said they're only gonna leave their children, you know, a small amount yeah, yeah. of their of their assets and the rest they're giving away. Mm -hmm. And they've already started the process of giving this away. So I don't know what Bill Gates is worth, but let's just say it's sixty billion dollars. Right. Okay, so what are they going to leave to their kids? A couple hundred million? Right. That leaves $59 million <laughs> that's going to be generated around the greater community. Warren Buffett is just the same. Mm -hmm. He's another one. You know, he's going to give, I think, 90% sure. of his wealth. Sure. To there are a lot of people that have signed that pledge mm -hmm. of giving away their wealth. Look at uh, Robert Smith, who yep. just eliminated all the debt. For the class, I think, of 2018 of Morehouse graduates. Yeah. Remarkable. Huge. Unexpected Huge. gift. Huge. Right? And, but he did it because he, number one, he can. Yeah. Number two, he wanted to have an impact. Mm -hmm. um, I think about the woman who was the washerwoman in Mississippi who had saved over $100,000 and then donated it to a college mm. so that others might be able to have the opportunity she didn't have wow. to go to college. Wow. So the, this whole notion of philanthropy is a remarkable thing. And it's, it's one of the things that <clears throat> certainly motivates me when I meet people and, and see the joy that they have mm -hmm. in, in making a gift whether it's a gift of money, the gift of their time. And even my staff, I talk with them. It's surprising, you know, we're in performance review time yeah, now, right. right? But people aren't motivated by money as much that work for us. Yeah, They love this work that they're doing and they want to do a good job at that's it. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Because that, I think that's the crux of having great employees. They, they, they're, they bought in. And I have to say for myself, it's the reason I've been there 20 years. When I right. think about it, you know, the work that I did with the United Negro College Fund, 
I love that job. Hmm. Had it not been for the circumstances of November 7, 1991, I probably would still be there. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? So speaking of of those circumstances, having um, been ingrained into with Magic's Foundation um, for for AIDS, and now you're with Ronald McDonald of House of Charity for the Kids, those two organizations are centrally focused on health. How has that has that made you become a little more aware of your health or mortality? Um, do you think about vitality in a different way, having experienced or worked in those fields? Of course. I mean, uh, back, you know, I lived through the, the AIDS crisis when people were dying mm-hmm. left and right. I remember one time I was, uh, I was working for the, the Magic Johnson Foundation. I was invited to go to Washington, D.C. for the, uh, the national quilt. Uh, they were unveiling the quilt on the mall, and they had invited me to be one of the speakers there. And they asked me to make a list of people that I knew that had died of HIV. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I remember sitting on the plane making the list, thinking, okay, this will take me 15 minutes. And next thing you know, we were landing in Washington, D.C. from Los Angeles, and I was still writing names. Wow. I, really? And I had, up until that point, I had never thought about how many people I personally knew that had died of H- from HIV. Oof. And so it's so, yes, those kinds of things, when you stop to think about mm-hmm. it, you you do become aware that this is a uh, this journey has a beginning and an end. Yeah. Right. Uh, and you also think about the randomness of good health. Uh, certainly when I talked to my doctor, he says, there's a certain percentage of this is in your DNA. Hmm. And there's a certain percentage of this that is based upon how you choose to live. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think about, you know, I shared with you earlier that my mother's parents lived with us. Um, well, my mother's actually lived 30 years longer than her mother. Hmm. And when I think about my grandmother who died in her mid sixties, I mean, my, and I was not quite 14 and, but I thought of her as an old lady, you know, she was from the South. She didn't have her teeth. She was always sickly, you know, she was slow moving. And, uh, my mother though, on the other hand, didn't get to be that way until she was in her nineties. So who knows? Mm. Uh, how long, none of us know how long we have. Right. And I think what I've decided to focus on is what can I do with what I have now? Because, mm-hmm. you know. So, that's all you have. That's all. That's yesterday all is gone. There's nothing you can do about nope. it. Tomorrow isn't promised. It's not here. So the only thing we have is this moment right now. Yeah. And I'm making a choice about this moment right now. Yeah few more questions. What leader do you look up to and admire? So many. 
Gosh, just give me three. Okay. So we were talking about him earlier, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. um, I think about him. I think about the fact that he never made it to 40. Yeah. You know, that this was a man that was deeply committed, uh, that went places. He didn't have an easy life. No. I mean, he didn't have means. He wasn't of wealth. Uh, even when you think about where he was killed, the Lorraine Motel. I mean, <laughs> right. that was a motel. Right. It was this big, prominent guy. But he had to stay in a motel. Mm -hmm. He couldn't stay in the nice hotels yeah. in Memphis for whatever reason. Uh, yet he was fully committed. Yeah. He was fully committed to uh, activism. And, um, you know, he was a husband. He had young children. And yet he was deeply committed in terms of his energy, in terms of his time mm -hmm. to that cause that he believed in. Um, you know, there's a young man that, I've been watching that I just, I really admire, and that's LeBron James. Mm. I mean, you look at this guy. I mean, he grew up without his father in his life. Right. His mother had some challenges. Mm -hmm. But if you look at how he has lived his life as an adult, you never hear him being arrested. You never hear him treating his body with Anything other than it's a temple. Yeah, true. I mean, he is extremely philanthropic. You just think, I mean, he acts like an old man in a lot of ways. You're <laughs> like, how did you learn this? He does. At such he a does. young age. And the thing that he gets criticized for is, quote, the decision. Right. Did he hurt anybody by doing that? I just can't figure out. I never understand why people hate on LeBron. I just, I just can't figure that out. You, you know, I, I just, I don't get it. Yeah. Um, and the third person I would say is uh, Harriet Tubman. Mm, that's a good one. Uh, I uh, keep a picture of her in my office and have for, for many, many years because you talk about courage personified. Mm -hmm. She had it and she was a little lady the yeah. fact that she would risk her life to go back once is more than most people would do. Right. But to go back repeatedly. Several. And to be able to navigate her way out successfully. There was a price on her head. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a remarkable woman she was. And yeah. you can't just eliminate the fact that she was a woman right. doing this. Right. <laughs> I mean, huge. that was, uh, I just, I stand in awe of her. Mm -hmm. um, so off the top of my head, those are three. There's a lot more. I'm sure. Uh, but those are good ones. Those are three those, people those, those that are I think about. Yeah. What, uh, what makes a leader great and iconic, in your opinion? Great and iconic? And iconic. I think commitment is one of those things. You know, I, I think to be iconic, I think you have to be fortunate. 
in terms of the time in which you're present. Hmm. We're talking about Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. He certainly wasn't the, the only civil rights leader right. of his time or before. He, you know, he was a great orator, but he wasn't the only great orator. Mm -hmm. He wasn't the only one who committed, yet things converged at that particular time mm -hmm. so that he was the one that was uh, seen as the, the iconic leader okay. of us. But if you think about the, the tens of thousands of people who were also committed, who also played a role in the, the civil rights uh, struggle, he was the symbol for that, mm -hmm. for all of them. Um, and, both white and black, that were courageous. And, you know, I'm from Detroit, so I, I remember when those three people, uh, white people, were murdered mm. who had come from Detroit down south. One of them was a, a woman, Viola, I'm going to mess up her name, Leuza, Leuzo, just murdered at a, a young mother at a young age who left Detroit to go to the south to march to be, to be with the Freedom Riders mm. and lost their lives because of that. Yeah. So there were a lot of people, is my point, that uh, helped contribute to this whole struggle being, um, being effective. Mm -hmm. And so I think a part of this is just the time that you have, that you're in, in this space. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Final question. I call this the tabula rasa, which stands for blank slate. Mm -hmm. All right. So you're an artist and you have a blank canvas in front of you and you have all the colors that you could possibly want or need. And on this blank canvas, you're going to draw design slash architect your life the way you see it. Now, the caveat is you've accomplished everything that you wanted to accomplish in life. You've, uh, whether you were still at uh, Ronald McDonald and massively blew that up, or maybe you went to another nonprofit and you made that organization huge, or you started your own, whatever it is, you've traveled the world, you've impacted millions, maybe billions of people, and you, you've continued to express and give love, gratitude, so forth and so on. You've done it all that you can possibly think of. Coming back to the blank canvas, what picture do you paint that represents you and your life? So that's a great question. Um, so I'm not so much a visual artist. <laughs> <laughs> but I see in but, the background you have art. Yes, so. <laughs> uh, but I can say that for me, I think I would stay with gray tones. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is because I think very little of life is black and white. Okay. I think the gray area where is where the majority of, of us, and I certainly have navigated, mm -hmm. that you know, you look at people and you draw a certain judgment about them, but really that's not the whole story. Correct. And and that's true with all of us. Uh, I was mentioning uh, my family's genealogy and studying that. And uh, 
I discovered where white blood came into my family on my grandmother's side. Mm. So her grandmother was married to, well, they weren't married because they couldn't be married mm -hmm. to a white guy. And he was a soldier in the Confederate Army. Mm. Yet he was with this black woman uh, to the point where the rest of his family disowned him. Mm. They couldn't be married. I mean, there had to be severe consequences to him, if you think about Absolutely. it. That's yeah. a white man in rural Georgia in the 1860s, Eesh. right? Yeah. And I remember explaining to my nephew, telling, talking to him about my, and I think for me, it's my great-great-grandfather. And um, he was like, how did he do that? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, on one hand, you're fighting for the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you've got this black woman that you're living with and having mm. children with. Mm. My mother actually met him as a little girl. And uh, wow, she just said he was the most loving guy that, you know, he treated them like he would have treated his family, that he treated his family. Huh. That became his family. But so the seeming contradictions yeah. of life are there for all that's of us. That's the gray. That's the gray area. So I think that's what I would choose to do okay. is that uh, uh, pain in the gray area. None of us are go on a straight path mm -hmm. anywhere. There are lots of zigs. There are lots of zags. Yeah. Um, we don't always make the decisions that we would be proud of. Right. Um, but we keep moving and we keep going and we keep trying, I think, to be better mm -hmm. than you were the day before. Uh, so the whole canvas just gray. Well, I, obviously there has to be some sunshine in there someplace. <laughs> it can be cloudy every day. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I, we live in Southern California. Yes. So being here with the sun, um, you know, it, is important. Okay. Um, so there has to be some sunshine in there, obviously. Some um, yellow and gold. Has to be some yellow and gold. You know, I'm University of Michigan, so maize and blue <laughs> is going to be in there someplace. Uh, when I think about, you know, the water and the ocean, uh, the land, hmm. I mean, there's so much beauty all around us. And to be able to appreciate the beauty of that canvas, I think would be important to me. Um, all of which... You know, again, living in California is probably one of the most beautiful places in the yeah. world, uh, honestly. So, you know, there'd have to be an appreciation for that as well in the canvas. And um, so. I like the picture. It's a good one. Vince, I want to salute you and thank you for the work that you're doing, not only in and with Ronald McDonald House of Charities, but the people that you are touching and those people because of you are going out into the world and they are forever changed and they impact. And I, I believe that is like, like you said earlier, circulation. And so those people are now impacting others and it just keeps coming back. And that that's huge because there's so much good that's going on in this world today. Yes. And we don't see it on the evening news or read it nope. in the newspaper or even on the internet. Correct. I mean, the sensational is what 
is designed to grab our attention. Right. And often, and reality is, what's happening on a daily basis is so much more substantive. Mm -hmm. But that's not what gets our attention, but that's what keeps us going. Mm -hmm. no, no question about it. So, um, yeah, thank you. Keep up the great work. Uh, I want to open the floor up for you to uh, either, A, you can put your information out if you would like, where people can, if they want to contribute their time to the House of Ronald McDonald, or if they want to donate, what can they do? How can they get in touch? So the easiest way is through our website, okay. rmhcsc.org. That's rmhcsc.org. And you can get all the information on our organization there, how mm -hmm. you can make a contribution, how you could be a volunteer. Um, and there'll be some stories there that will likely inspire you as well. That's great. Any um, questions or anything for me? No, I don't think so. We covered a lot of territory <laughs> today. Uh, I didn't quite know what to expect, but it's been fun. Thank That's you. It was great. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Ladies and gentlemen, Vince Bryson. For those of us that struggle with confrontation, Vince's philosophy is number one, remove the emotion for clarity of thought. And number two, don't take the bait if and when someone attempts to lure you into a psychological roller coaster. Abiding by these two principles may not be the easiest task to master. However, I know once accomplished, we all can collaborate successfully, take the charge and lead up. If you're interested in volunteering or donating to RMHC, please go to www.rmhcsc.org. Thank you for listening. Please share this episode with family and friends or tag this episode on our Instagram page at leaduplifestyle.com. If you can, please donate to this podcast so that we can continue to grow. Simply go to the bottom of the lead up podcast description and click the donate link. And as always, continue to lead up.